I don't remember how I came across it, but I got a book by a gentleman named David Mitchell. It's called Messiah Ben Joseph, and it is a survey of Scripture and the Jewish literature looking for the Messiah, the son of Joseph. The place where it all starts is with the blessing of the tribes in Deuteronomy and Genesis, where Jacob blesses his sons, and then Moses prophesies over the tribes. So it turns out that Joseph gets a whole lot more ink than Judah does. The blessing of Joseph is, in fact, the blessing of Abraham. So if you go back to the blessing that God gave Abraham back in Genesis 15, it goes to Joseph, not to Judah. I'm going to go to Deuteronomy 33. And if you go down to verse 13, you have the prophecy that Moses gave over the tribe of Joseph. And you have about three or four verses of fruitfulness and all that kind of thing. But the interesting part for our purposes, I mean, it's all interesting, but for our purposes, the thing that's interesting is down in verse 17. It says, a firstborn bull, he has majesty and his horns are the horns of a wild ox. And with them, he shall gore the peoples, all of them, to the ends of the earth. They are the ten thousands of Ephraim. They are the thousands of Manasseh. The thing that jerked me up short is this firstborn bull is by definition a sacrificial animal. God says in Exodus, which we just read this last week, that everything that opens the womb belongs to him. So the idea that Joseph is a firstborn bull is a sacrificial marker. And his horns are the horns of the wild ox. And again, the wild ox here is not just some Holstein that's wandered off the farm and gone feral. It's an oryx which is an extinct European wild cow, stands six foot high at the shoulder and has a bad attitude. So the idea that he has the horns of a wild ox and with them he will gore the peoples, all of them to the ends of the earth, you are talking about a warrior. So what the book is doing is going through all of the Jewish literature. What we're doing is going through the Psalms and going through the messianic psalms and pointing out that some of them in fact clearly refer to joseph as opposed to judah and so last week we did this introduction which i just gave you in 25 words or less i took longer last week and we went through psalms 1 and 2. psalms 1 and 2 are regarded in many rabbinic sources as one psalm and Psalm 2 especially talks about a Messiah. The rabbis in their literature regard it as the Messiah, the son of Joseph. And we talked about all that last time. What I want to do tonight is pick up the triptych, which is Psalms 22, 23, and 24. I've sort of shifted my focus a little bit. I was going to focus on the Messiah, the son of Joseph, but I think we'll just change the focus slightly to Messianic Psalms because 23 and 24 are not about Joseph, although the 22 is. And then probably next week we'll do Psalm 110. And 
one of the ways to read Psalm 110, which I have found very profitable, is the book of Hebrews is a commentary on Psalm 110. And it's obviously also a messianic psalm. And then what we'll do is finish up with a group of psalms in the middle of the book of Psalms, which are Levitical and Josephite. And it'll be probably two weeks from now, depending on how things go. As I say, I only plan to do a very few sessions on this. I'm not going to go through all the Psalms. I'm not even going to go through all the Messianic Psalms. So, just to sort of recap from last time, Psalm 1 has got several Josephite references in it. So if you go down to Psalm 1 and verse 3, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf doesn't wither. All that he does, he prospers, and so forth. That's Joseph. That's the language that both Moses and Jacob speak about with Joseph. And then, of course, you go on to Psalm 2, which is the trialogue, if you will, conversation among three parties. And again, I'm not going to go through all that. So let's go to Psalm 22 now. And as an overview, Psalm 22, 23, and 24 are regarded by Christians as two hills in a valley. So if you listen to somebody like Vernon McGee or one of those guys, who's a perfectly good commentator, he talks about 22 as being Mount Calvary, 24 as being Mount Zion, and then the valley of the shadow of death in between. So Christianity clearly regards those three psalms as a triptych according to Mitchell's scholarship. And depending on his scholarship, and if he's wrong, I'm wrong, because I don't know any more than he does. don't know as much as he does, quite frankly. His comment was that the psalms as a book were put together about 500 B.C., That was after the Babylonian exile. The individual psalms are older than that. The various psalms composed by David and so forth are far older than that, but the composition and arrangement of the psalms into a book happened about 500 B.C. If you all remember your history, of course, the northern kingdom got sanded off about 700 B.C., about 100 years later, we lost the southern kingdom to Babylon. So Israel as an independent nation and a regional power had been destroyed by that time. And so what Mitchell's comment was is when the Psalms were put together, the whole book is intended to be messianic, which is to say, yeah, we're in real trouble right now. We got scattered. We're not a power anymore but God's going to restore us and he will use a Messiah to do it or actually two Messiahs to do it. A Messiah, the son of Joseph and a Messiah, the son of David or Judah. So the idea that these three Psalms, 22, 23, and 24 are in a unit like that and 22 and 24 are definitely messianic That was put together that way by the Jews. They're all Davidic Psalms. They're all Psalms of David, so that they were written a long time ago, organized into a book. That part of it didn't happen until 500 B.C. The point I'm making, as I say, is these three Psalms are obviously messianic, and 
from a Christian perspective, they obviously apply to Yeshua. Just clear, clear, clear. And the fact that they were organized that way was done by the Jews, not by Christians. Now let's start with Psalm 22, and I'm going to read a rabbinic note on Psalm 22, and then we'll go into Psalm 22. So the Peskita Rabati, which is a Midrashic Jewish book on the Torah portions and the holidays, in other words, it was like a devotional, if you will, written according to the internet probably sometime around 800 A.D. In other words, it's old, but it's not biblical old. Next, the Peskita Rabati cites Psalm 22 of Ben-Joseph no less than seven times. For example, Ephraim, our righteous Messiah, although we are your ancestors, yet you are greater than we. For you bore sins on our behalf and awful sufferings. Your eyes were darkened and your strength was dried up like a potsherd. All this happened because of our sins. So the idea in Jewish literature of the Messiah ben Joseph dying for their sins is not a Christian idea. It's firmly in the Jewish literature. If you read some places like Aish and so forth, which are anti-missionary sites, you'll find that modern rabbis will sort of poo-poo that whole notion. But the older writings, it's all over the place. So let's go to Psalm 22 then. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is one of the statements that Yeshua made on the cross. As we read through this, we'll see that it obviously refers to the events of the crucifixion, prophetically, obviously, and the fact that it doesn't refer to the Messiah ben Judah, but to the Messiah ben Joseph, is what is interesting from our perspective today. Verse 3, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. This is the Messiah speaking to God. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. This is echoed in the Gospels at the crucifixion, where people come by as he's on the cross, and they say very much this kind of thing. If you're really the Messiah, rescue yourself. Verse 9. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my brother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. 
Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening lion. This bull theme, which goes back to Deuteronomy 33, obviously used in a different sense here. In Deuteronomy 33, said Joseph is a firstborn bull, which is a sacrificial animal. Here we have bulls surrounding me and opening their mouths like a ravening and roaring lion. Now, I don't know about you. Bulls can make a lot of noise, but you've got a mixed metaphor there. Sort of like going back to Pharaoh's dreams in Exodus, where you have these seven fat cows that come out of the Nile, and then you have seven lean and scrawny cows that come out, and the lean and scrawny ones eat the fat ones. Cows are not carnivorous. So this idea of mixed images, if you will, where you have something that is not behaving according to type, say it goes clear back to Exodus. So the idea of these bulls around him is a Joseph echo, if you will, but you also have this mixed imagery. Verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. And Christian commentators that I have read indicate that this is crucifixion language. And the next couple of verses will be the same. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. All of that is crucifixion language and and is echoed, if you will, in the Gospels where you have the Roman soldiers cast lot for his garments and being pierced and hanging from his wrist like that, all of his bones are out of joint, if you will. Not literally out of joint, but you can count them all, is the way he's describing it. Verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, Come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Remember we have up in verse 16, dogs have surrounded him. Save me from the mouth of a lion. Remember we have this bull that is roaring like a lion. So the imagery is the same. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. There's our wild ox again. And... There is another translation to this. The other translation is more Josephite than this one is. So I will read it from uh, King Jimmy 21. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. Unicorns is how King James translates the wild ox. It's an auric, which is a different animal than a cow. I mean, it is, a, it is a cow, but it's way different species. So you have heard me from the horns of the unicorns. And let me go to the Hebrew 
In the Hebrew, the literal Hebrew is rescue me from the mouth of the lion and from the horns of the wild ox, you have answered me. So this idea of deliverance, because you remember in uh, Deuteronomy that we've started off with, his horns are like the horns of a wild ox and with them he gores the nations. So the idea here that he is answered with the horns of a wild ox is Josephite language, if you will. So down to verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cries to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. The way I am interpreting this is that the sacrifice of Messiah is going to be the mechanism by which the nations are turned to God. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. So before him, God, all the earth shall bow down. All those who go down to the dust are humans, mortals. In English, it's an awkward phrase. So let me try it again. Before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust. So before God, everybody who goes down to the dust, humans, will bow down. Let me read 29 again, and there's one more thing to say here. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Who is the one who could not keep himself alive? Yeshua, the Messiah. Ultimately, nobody gets to keep himself alive. But theoretically, Yeshua could have, because he's without sin. And his father was God, which means that he did not have the mortal nature that comes down through the father's line from Adam. Even the one who could not keep himself alive, I believe, refers to the Messiah. And the reason he could not keep himself alive is because his father sent him down here with the purpose of dying for the sins of the nations. So not being able to keep himself alive was not a biological problem. It was a theological problem. If the trials weren't real, then he wasn't human. If the trials weren't real, then he didn't experience what we experience because we are tempted. And furthermore, if you go back to Adam and Eve, they were created without sin also. Yet they had the ability to sin because they did. 
So Yeshua also was born without sin, yet he had the ability to sin had he decided to do so. But he never did. Verse 30. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Pronouns there are mixed. You've got he being the one who died, and you've got he being the Lord. Untangling that is... So that's what Christians would describe as Mount Calvary. That's the sacrifice of the Messiah. And as I read to you from the Jewish literature here, the Jews see that as being Messiah, the son of Joseph, even though it was written by David. So now to Psalm 23. The Messiah is dead, goes down to the grave, and so forth. And now what you have is the valley of the shadow of death. So you have a mountain where he's crucified, he goes down into a valley, and that valley is the shadow of death. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still water. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The idea here is he is sacrificed on the cross. He goes down to the grave, yet God is with him because God will raise him back up. Even though as he was on the cross, he cries, why have you forsaken me? In fact, God has not lost track of him at all. And so this idea of him walking through the valley of the shadow of death it is a trip that he needs to take between Calvary and Zion. Verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I'm suggesting that of the Messiah, that is talking about resurrection and is talking about future lordship. So that takes us now down to Psalm 24. And again, this is a Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. To stop there for a minute, this is obviously Genesis reference, but it's also messianic reference. Because what happens is he comes first as the sacrificial lamb. He is going to come back as the king of the earth. That's the whole point of the seven seals in Revelation. In Revelation, we have the seven seals that get opened up. And for those of you who haven't heard this, I'm sure most everybody has, a deed was sealed. And this, by the way, is the whole crux of the parable of the Wicked servant who's fired by his master and goes out and changes the tenant's debts. You owe my master how many measures of oil? Change it and write this. You know that parable? The idea is there's two copies of a deed. You have an open copy and you have a closed copy. 
The open copy is the one that you have in your desk drawer and when you're talking with your neighbor, you open it up and say, no, 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 no. That's where the boundary is and you gotta keep your sheep out of that side of the rock. Or, you know, those kinds of things. It's a working copy. The sealed copy is what we would call the copy that is at the county courthouse. When you register a deed, it goes into the county courthouse and stays there. So there's two copies. This is genealogy now. I believe the open copy is the Torah. That's the one that we have down here to work from. The closed copy is the one that is up in heaven. And that's the one whose seals are being opened. And what the closed copy does is it authenticates that Yeshua is the owner. This is his. And so then the next thing that will happen is you'll have seven trumpets which announce the coming of the king and then you'll finally have seven bowls of wrath where the king takes vengeance on his enemies. So the idea of the earth is the Lord's and all the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and so forth. What this is saying is the Messiah, Yeshua, the Son of God, God himself, owns the place. Verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false or to an idol, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. The hill that we are talking about here is Zion, not Calvary. And then... Verse 7, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Now, I am going to suggest to you that the gates and the ancient doors are Jerusalem. Does not say that. So lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty mighty in battle. For those of you who are Trinitarian, as I do happen to be, what you have is the Lord, Jehovah, in here, is the king of glory, and he's the one that's coming in to the gate. I personally happen to believe that that's Yeshua. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. You have Calvary, the value of the shadow, and then Mount Zion. The other thing about this is if you go back to Deuteronomy 33, what you discover is that the Messiah, the son of Joseph, is a warrior. He is the firstborn bull who is sacrificed, yes, but he is also a warrior. And the model there is Joshua. Joshua is an Ephraimite. Joshua is a son of Joseph, in the sense. And Joshua is the one who dispossesses the land of the usurper. He's the one who leads the people of God, Israel, into the land to drive out 
the ones who are polluting the land. Yahshua and Yeshua are the same name. So the idea of a Messiah, the son of Joseph, who is a conquering warrior, goes all the way back to Deuteronomy. I mean, that's the, the horns of the wild ox with which he'll gore the nations. And it also goes to the book of Joshua. And then it also goes forward to the book of Revelation. The Jewish literature on this has two messiahs. We have a Messiah, the son of Joseph, who is a warrior, who comes and conquers, and who dies in the process and makes a way for the Messiah, the son of Judah, who will then rule and reign. That's the Jewish take on it. And again, understand, two Jews, three opinions, there's lots of Jewish literature. What this guy is doing is going through and finding references to Messiah ben Joseph in the Jewish literature. And what I'm saying is there's a respectable line of belief in Judaism, that there are two messiahs, one of Joseph and one of Judah. And as we said last time, if you read the genealogy of Yeshua in the book of Luke, it starts with Joseph, who is his legal father. And it says, son of Joseph, parenthesis, as was supposed. So in his first advent, you have him coming as the Messiah, the son of Joseph, who is the sacrificial bull. And he is preparing the way then for the Messiah of the tribe of Judah, which is the genealogy that comes in the book of Matthew. And he will come back as the king to rule and reign. That's Christian theology that is not Jewish theology. But all of the elements are in the Jewish literature. They don't see Trinitarianism at all. They're firmly monotheistic. And lots of rabbis are of the opinion that we are polytheists, three gods. We are not, or at least I'm not, polytheists. We are believers that there is one God who presents himself to us in three persons. He has a body, he has a soul, and he has a spirit. The spirit of God is the spirit of God. The body, if you will, is Yeshua. And then the mind, will, and emotion are what we call the Father. And we are made in the same image of God, which is to say we're made in the same pattern, and we have a body, a soul, and a spirit. But one being. I don't look at you all and I don't see three beings there. I see one being, which has a body, soul, and spirit. And when you die, the body will be sown into the ground. The soul and the spirit will ascend and get reunited with the resurrection body at some point. But you're not three people. You're one. That's how I view it. The rabbis think I'm full of cornflakes, which is fine. They're going to think that anyway. They see a Messiah who is a descendant of Joseph, and they see a different man who is a Messiah who is descendant of Judah. In their literature, the Messiah, the son of Joseph, comes first. He is a warrior, and in that process, he will die. 
but in that process he also makes way then for the descendant of Judah or David. We see it as one man, Yeshua, who comes and in the process dies. They see Messiah ben Joseph as dying because of their sins. That's different than dying for their sins. Now, there is a line of rabbinic thought that sees the death of a righteous person as being atoning for the sins of others. That is also Jewish. I don't know if that applies to Joseph. What I'm saying is, at his first advent, he came as the son of Joseph. And so he fulfills, then, if you will, all the prophecies and types of so forth of the Messiah, the son of Joseph. And then when he comes back again, he will fill the rest of them as the Messiah, the son of David. The whole point of this book is all of the stuff that we believe about the Messiah, with the exception of his divinity and Trinitarianism, is perfectly Jewish. We're not doing anything weird according to Jewish theology. You know, one of the things that I have said within the last month somewhere here, I lose track of what I say when, is I believe one of the reasons that you have so many people raised from the dead in the Old Testament, you, know, you have the Shunammite son and so forth, is not because Elisha and Elijah were simply being good guys, but to get it recorded in the scriptures that resurrection from the dead was possible. So that when Yeshua is raised from the dead, it shouldn't be anything that freaked them out. Because it's something that has happened in their own scriptures in the past. As I say, these three Psalms, 22, 23, and 24, are organized in that fashion by the rabbis. Or actually by the Jews. I don't know if there were rabbis at that time. About 500 B.C. But the point is... The organization which we look at and say, well, gee, this is pretty obvious, is something that was not set up by Christians. It was set up some 500 years before Christ. And it's the same thing with resurrection. Well, Elijah and Elisha both raised people from the dead. What's your problem with resurrection? I'm just saying, all of this stuff that Christians believe has its roots in the Old Testament. We're not inventing anything. The idea of a son of God, they don't buy. And of course, they don't buy the idea of the Trinity. Their idea of the Messiah is it will be a man, a military hero, somebody that will reestablish the kingdom and go out and kick butt and take names among the Gentiles. Shama